Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Tired of your business's healthcare costs unpredictably increasing every year? Healthcare costs are typically a business's second or third line item expense. And if you're like most employers, it's an expense that's growing faster than your revenue. Luckily for employers, Novetta Health has the solution. Novetta Health is a full-service healthcare consulting firm with proven strategies to lower your healthcare costs by up to 30% or more. They operate on a fee-for-service model and never mark up any of their medical or pharmaceutical claims. None of your employees have to leave their doctor or pharmacist either. Their health captive and pharmacy benefit manager are the most cost-effective and transparent solutions in the whole country. What they do is not magic, it's just honest. So if you're tired of overspending on health insurance and want to learn more, visit outcomesrocket.health save for a free spend analysis to see how you too could save by switching to Novetta Health. That's outcomesrocket.health save for your free spend analysis. Outcomesrocket.health save. Welcome back once again to the podcast. Today, I have a special privilege to invite two guests. First, we have Omar Abudeya. He is a, an MD, PhD student at Harvard Medical School in the lab of Fen Zhang at the Broad Institute. Omar is a six-year MD, PhD student at this program. He received his BS in Mechanical and Biological Engineering from MIT, where he was awarded the top prize in engineering school. In his graduate studies at the lab at the Broad Institute, he has co-led studies reporting the discovery and characterization of novel CRISPR enzymes. We all know these are at the headlines of papers today, ways to tackle diseases that we struggle with like cancer including the first single enzyme RNA targeting CRISPR-Cas systems. We'll talk more about that during the podcast interview today. He later developed the Cas13A system into the Sherlock platform for nucleic acid detection with his colleague, Jonathan Gutenberg, which I'll do his intro here in a second. His work has resulted in 20 research publications in journals such as Nature, Science, and Cell, and has been funded through the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship, National Defense Science and Engineering Graduate Fellowship, and the NIH National Research Service Award. We also have Jonathan Gutenberg. He's currently a PhD candidate at the Harvard Systems Biology Program, co-advised by the Feng Zhang and Aviv Rajev of the Broad Institute of MIT in Harvard. Jonathan's research combines computational and molecular approaches to discover and characterize new biological tools with a specific focus on CRISPR-Cas proteins, as Omar is doing. They're partners in crime in this effort. These tools have diverse basic science and translation applications, including nucleic acid detection, genome scale screening, and live cell. So with that introduction, needless to say, these are some brilliant minds working on CRISPR technology, and it's a privilege to have you both on the podcast. Help me fill in any of the gaps of the intros that I gave to you guys, and uh, we're giving you here a warm welcome on behalf of everybody listening. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, this is Bios are pretty spot on. We both recently graduated, so I guess candidates no longer. But ah, congratulations. Yeah, it's, it's a fun. That's awesome. But yeah, it was, you know, graduate school is a, a great time to learn and discover a lot of different things. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that uh, you guys made time to be on, and uh, thanks for, for the correction there. Congrats on, on finishing that. So, you know, would love to hear what got you guys into the health space to begin with. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, growing up when, you know, you study all the subjects, physics, math, you know, chemistry, biology, always somehow drawn to biology because it's the processes that are happening inside of you, you know, physics, it's like, you know, describes things that you might be familiar with every day, like bouncing a ball, you know, or throwing, you know, a paper plane, but like you start learning about polymerases and viruses and how they can dock into cells and how T cells can obliterate other cells in your body. And it's literally like warfare and evolution that's happening inside of you. And you never notice it, you never see it. And yet it's incredibly fascinating. And so I think ever since I was a kid, I kind of got hooked on the invisible molecular world. And as I started getting, diving more and more into that world, you start realizing that all of these interesting things play a huge role in disease. And so, you know, biology is really this foundation that starts to inform medicine. It's like the biology is kind of like learning how to walk, but medicine is being able to run. And so I started realizing that all these interesting things that happen in you um, can go awry, they can cause disease. And the more knowledge you have about a cell, the more of a blueprint you have to, that you can start to actually design fixes and come up with medicines. And I think that's kind of really fascinating. And I think even, you know, biology has come a long way since I was a kid. Um, you know, we have synthetic biology and we have tools where you can actually program cells. You can program how to cut DNA and change DNA. Um, and I think the tools are, you know, getting more and more advanced every year to the point where you can really think about biology as an engineering discipline and you can actually start designing it, which I think is just really cool and fun. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely a, a fascinating place to to play. And the evolution's been pretty stellar in the last few years. And great to hear your story, Omar. And, and Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, I think that I was pretty um, lucky to grow up in a family. Both my parents were practicing physicians. And um, so from a pretty early age, I was kind of in that environment of medicine and biological discovery. And I also grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. So NIH was literally a kind of a subway stop. Backyard, yeah. Yeah, from my house. But I think beyond that, I, both Omar and I are, are very lucky to kind of come into biology and kind of medical science at a time when there's becoming to be so much more possible because the discovery of new tools, both those based on you know instrumentation, better microscopy, better DNA sequencing, but also based on molecular tools where we can start to take the elements of life, these proteins that are surrounding us and turn them into things that allow us to edit genomes or cure diseases. I think that's so rapidly accelerating right now. So it's just such an exciting time to go into this really thrilling field where these days you can write something down on your computer, a gene sequence, and ship it off to a company. And in three days, you can get a two with that DNA of that gene in it. So I think seeing the, the advances, and we're really at the cusp of something really amazing where we can start to take this biological diversity, and this is what Omar and I have been doing during our graduate careers, and turn them into both tools for the biological community, but also these really new approaches for doing medicine for diagnosing and treating disease, it's just a really thrilling time. And seeing that and seeing how things are kind of evolving in that way, I really couldn't resist being in biomedicine. Yeah, it's really uh, phenomenal what we've been able to accomplish. Um, like you said, uh, Jonathan, from like computer code to actual like DNA code is pretty insane. 
Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's just going to become more and more accessible. So I think it's something that will be really transformative in the next, you know, decades. For sure. So uh, let's dive in, guys. Um, what do you guys feel is a hot topic that needs to be on health leaders' agenda today? And how would you guys approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we think about every day is gene therapy and how to drive that forward and make it a reality for the, I don't know, 5,000 or more plus genetic diseases that we can pinpoint a specific genetic mutation to and know how that sort of causes the progression of disease. And I think there are outstanding challenges uh, to making that happen at many layers. I think right now, even if you had the perfect genome editing system, which CRISPR is almost that, it's not quite there, it has some limitations, there's still problems with cell delivery. And so one of the biggest problems in sort of the gene therapy space is how do you target the tissues you want and how do you get into the cells you want um, without causing off targets and hitting tissues you don't want to correct. And how do you know what you're injecting is actually safe for the patient? I think the past year, there were a string of papers showing that CRISPR-Cas9 itself, the enzyme, there's a certain fraction of the population that actually has pre-existing immunity to these proteins, likely because um, you know, CRISPR actually comes from bacteria that are normally uh, in humans or humans can become exposed to them. For example, you know, strep pyogenes is actually a pathogen for humans, so they might be exposed to it and then develop immunity. So you know, immune toxicity is one issue. And then, of course, there's uh, the cost, which I think is not something, you know, Jonathan and I deal with every day because we're just, you know, in the lab developing these things. But the costs for these types of therapies is getting larger and larger every year. You know, immunocancer therapies that were announced a year or two ago were a few hundred thousand dollars like Chimera. And at one of the latest, you know, JPM conferences, I think there were gene therapy announcements for two or four million dollars a piece. So, you know, these are some of the largest prices ever in the drug industry. And drug companies, I think, justify it because it's a single sort of curative dose. You know, it's not something you take every year for a long time, but that's also going to become a big consideration. So it's like, who, do you, who pays for it? How, what happens if your insurer doesn't pay for it? How do you afford it? And, you know, those things have not really been worked out yet. No, some really great insights there and, and some of the limitations uh, uh, that you call out uh, as well. I think it's really fair and um, the promise is, is large and the limitations are also there. So we'd love to hear uh, an example of what you guys are seeing and, and how results have been created by doing things and thinking differently. Yeah, I think that it's really important as these new technologies are developed and, you know, our role is really at the kind of very early technological inception. It's important mm -hmm. to have a dialogue right now between those really early technologies and the people who will be eventually adopting them. Because it's in, in when we develop these gene therapies and when we think about ways that you know maybe we can treat certain diseases, it's important to think of the whole process and how, you know, as Omar alluded to, how will these be paid for? How can create a structure that they can be efficiently adopted and really taken to their actual realization? So I think this is kind of a broader question throughout all of these technological disruptions, gene therapy and CRISPR, but also the emerging role of artificial intelligence and machine learning in medicine, how to best adopt that while maintaining good records of patients and not, you know, having issues with patient privacy or risks with uh, 
false predictions of certain genetic information. So I think all of these things, there needs to be a discussion between the technology developers and the people who will eventually be using the technology. Mm -hmm. And because we're so early, we don't often have to get a chance to have these discussions, but through our work you mentioned with Sherlock, which is a diagnostic platform that we helped develop in the lab during our graduate work and is now in the process of, you know, hopefully being translated. We've had the opportunity to attend things like TedMed, where we can have these conversations and see these technologies have such potential, but where can they first be applied? Where can they make the biggest difference? And where can they, given their price points, are they very cheap, but easy to deploy? Or are they very expensive, but more difficult to deploy? Where they can best be used by medical professionals. So it's really the take home, I think, is how can we start developing new tools in the lab with the end in mind of where they'll actually end up and mm -hmm. not just drop these things on patients saying, oh, this will cost $2 million. And more discussions, more planning would really uh, be a great way to move that forward. Totally. Love that insight. And, you know, would love to hear a little bit more about uh, Sherlock. You know, what is it and, and how are things going? Yeah, so Sherlock is, uh, I mean, I'm sure most people listening are aware of sort of the, the story of you know, the detective Sherlock, but in the context <laughs> of our work, it's an acronym uh, for, I believe, specific high sensitivity enzymatic, enzymatic reporter unlocking. Unlocking. Oh, yeah. Lock stands for unlocking. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, That's great. But what the technology does, and the reason we chose Sherlock as acronym, is it's essentially you know a detective of nucleic acid. So mm. the technology, cool. uh, yeah, it's it's able to very uh, sensitively and specifically pick up a DNA or RNA signature, viruses, bacteria, um, diseases like cancer, even single mutations. Like if you want to genotype someone for you know, mutation that increases Alzheimer's risk or a mutation that gives you norovirus resistance. It's able to do that. And we've been able to create this platform using the power of CRISPR. So we discovered a few years ago, a set of enzymes that instead of being useful for gene correction, as is most popular with CRISPR for gene therapy, it's actually much better for reporting on the presence of nucleic acid. Hmm. So what uh, these enzymes do, which specifically their name is Cas13 and Cas12, when they bind a nucleic acid, they um, start becoming uh, permanently active and start chewing up everything in the solution. And wow. so if there's a reporter molecule that when chewed up becomes fluorescent, essentially uh, these proteins will uh, connect fluorescence to the detection of a specific nucleic acid. So... What that allows for is because these enzymes are very good at picking up nucleic acids, we can detect a single molecule of DNA in a sea of millions of other molecules. And because they're super specific to the sequence, they're able to pick up that single base pair. So it's a really enabling set of underlying proteins that enable the whole platform. And what's even better is they're very cheap to produce. It's very quick. It happens in you know, less than 10 minutes. Um, and we've been able to deploy this platform uh, on a paper strip. So you can actually see the fluorescence on a paper strip using a simple device or even by eye, allowing it to be deployed in research poor settings where a person running it might not be skilled or they might not have like an actual instrument. So that's kind of the promise of the technology. Yeah. And we published a series of papers around it. And you know, now we're trying to think about how do we really deploy it in the real world? 
And so we've done that through some collaborations. There's another group here run by Pradeesh Sabedi at the Broad that's been running Sherlock workshops um, in the developing world in Honduras and some other countries in Africa. They're trying to track epidemics of different viruses like Lassa uh, virus. But we've also been thinking about um, maybe how to spin this technology out of academia to go after diseases, for example, like sepsis. So a big issue in the medical world is, you know, someone has bacteria growing in their blood and they present to the ER and, you know, to do blood cultures, it takes, you know, a day or two. Usually it's, it's hard to diagnose what's going on. You have to give broad spectrum antibiotics, which is not really good for the patient. They have bad side effects and that also promotes uh, antibiotic resistance. So the promise of a technology like ours, you could have a test either in the ER directly or in the hospital lab that within an hour could tell you what specific bacterial strains are in someone's blood. And then you could actually treat the specific strains using the exact antibiotics that are appropriate. So that's an example of how, you know, a simple nucleic acid test can sort of change workflows happening right now in the hospital. And that's yeah, kind of super interesting. Yeah. That's definitely interesting. And uh, yeah, thinking about, you know, the, the sepsis deal, it's definitely something that does take time. You know, you go, you see perhaps, you know, some respiratory compromise. Well, to get a lactic, you know, test, it takes a while. And this is a very interesting approach. So appreciate you sharing that. Obviously, tip of the iceberg, folks. So at the end of the podcast, we'll share some links where you could learn some more and, and get in touch with these folks if you're if you're interested, Omar and Jonathan. So let's dive into some of the things that maybe haven't gone as well. Maybe you guys could share a setback and what you learned from that setback to uh, have made you guys better. Yeah, I mean, it'd probably be honestly easier to talk about a time that we haven't made a mistake or failed. <laughs> I mean, science, the process of science is really about embracing failure. Yeah. You know, in lab every day, we'll do 10 things and seven of them will fail on a good day. But I think that maybe one specific instance of failure was, well, it comes actually back to a lot of this early work that we were doing with a lot of these CRISPR enzymes. And the characterization of these enzymes is, is a pretty comprehensive process. We run a bunch of different assays to try to figure out, you know, how they like to cut nucleic acids, their molecular scissors, um, right? And how, what, what different sequences they prefer. So back in, um, this was, would be about late 2015 or early 2016, Omar and I were characterizing this enzyme, Cas13. Back then, we called it C2C2, um, which is a little bit more of a mouthful. And we were running a lot of different uh, assays to figure out exactly how it liked to figure out which nucleic acids it like to come. And we're doing these a couple different ways. One way we would put it into bacteria and we would have a kind of a big soup of bacteria each with a different sequence in it. And some of the bacteria would grow and some of them wouldn't. And they told us that it liked to cut this certain sequence. And that was very cool. And you know, we had expected that. And we were trying to repeat the experiment in a test tube. Kind of this, you know, take everything out of the bacteria and just have it as, you know, these nucleic acids in a tube, and we knew that the protein should work in a tube, it could work outside of bacteria, but every time we read out the assay, and this would take about a week, um, and it costs a couple thousand dollars, um, and it would be a fair amount of work, we got nothing. So what we found wow. is that the enzyme was actually cutting up everything, independent of, you know, its sequence, and it was actually a little disheartening, and we were like, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? There's so many, I mean, 
there's so many things that can go wrong in experiments. So we had to debug from every angle. You can get contamination that can cause things to be chew up. You can have problems with amplifications. You can have other enzymes go bad. So I think we redid the uh, experiment about five times over the course of probably a month, month and a half. And it, we still didn't get anything. That's tough. Yeah, it was disheartening. But yeah. it made us think, you know, how is this enzyme working in this test tube? And maybe it's working differently than we expect. So hmm. one thing you have to chew, see when you see data over and over again is there's a part where you have to trust the data. When you've eliminated every other possibility, you have to stop going with your gut sometimes and say, what are my governing assumptions? And maybe those governing assumptions are wrong. So we were thinking that this enzyme, C2C2, Cas13A, was working like Cas9 and globbing onto a specific sequence and cutting it. But what really was happening was that it was globbing onto one sequence and then cutting other sequences in the solution. It was actually this collateral activity that Omar discussed, this mechanism that's at the heart of the Sherlock technology that was causing this experiment to fail over and over again. And it made us think, man, we should test for this explicitly. If we trigger it with one piece of RNA, will it cut another piece of RNA? And that led us to actually think this is, you know, the first time that we have this really new activity of this enzyme. We had not predicted it at all and explained the results perfectly that it was actually becoming active and chewing everything up. And wow. that's what made Sherlock. So man. where were you guys when you sort of like came up with this conclusion? I think we were probably, I mean, we were definitely in the lab. I think we were either at the bench or at our desks, but it was like, you know, we were like, man, maybe it's doing this crazy thing. You know, yeah. it's really easy to set up an experiment to test this hypothesis. And, you know, we ran it and, you know, by golly, that's, we got exactly what would be expected if it was having this activity. And I remember seeing that, I was like, oh man, we, we wasted Insane. so much of our time. But really, I mean, it's not wasted because we could be confident that it wasn't some other part of this really complex procedure of data mm -hmm. analysis and everything. You know, Omar did the experiment, I did the experiment, we both did it, and it was all always failing. And then eventually, you know, you just realize, man, I've really been latching on to this core foundational axiom that was incorrect. So to take that away from that, I mean, of course, we learned a lot of lessons about how the enzyme worked, and that was incredible for so many applications. But more broadly, you have to learn how to identify where you're really making assumptions, because they happen all the time, and usually they're incredibly important. But to be able to know that you've made assumptions, and then go back and say, oh, man, this is what was really the, the wrench that destroyed everything later on, then you can see an entirely new perspective on it. And that's the most important thing. That's a really great story, Jonathan. And appreciate you sharing that. You know, it's, um, you said latching onto core foundational axioms that are incorrect. Uh, usually they're important, right? And sometimes uh, we got to really kind of take a look at these things when things aren't working and uh, question them. I think uh, something listeners you could apply to the business world in a really great way, maybe you've been trying to achieve a result and also to the clinical world, maybe you've been trying to achieve a particular outcome. Well, are there assumptions that you haven't questioned? Now's the time. So great insights there, guys. What would you say one of your proudest experiences has been throughout your work to date? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's maybe multiple 
answers to this question. I would say, I think one of the things that makes coming into work every day is actually the people. You know, Jonathan was saying earlier that probably most things every day fail. And so if you're just, you know, riding your emotions and your happiness on like the outcome of your experiments for a given day, you're really in for a roller coaster being in science. And so I think one thing that's been really fun over the past few years is having, you know, trainees and mentees uh, that you, that, you know, really help drive the science forward, but you really get to see grow during the course of the research and the projects. And so I think over my time in the Broad Institute the past few years, through all these papers, we've probably had a few master's students, a few research associates. And I think some of the proudest moments is really seeing them go from, you know, maybe never having touched a pipette before to having done some research in undergrad to becoming like really effective, um, you know, budding scientists and going off into the world to, you know, either go to medical school or get their PhDs. One of our most recent students really helped drive our last science paper forward for the past year and then ended up getting into the PhD program at University of Cambridge. So that was really exciting to see his growth. So I think I would say I think some of my proudest moments have really been the people around us um, succeeding and doing great science at the same time. Yeah, that's outstanding. You guys definitely have to build each other up because with all the all the failures and the stones being thrown and just kind of uh, beating your head up against brick walls. It's uh, certainly important. So kudos to you for building that legacy of future scientists there as you continue your discovery of these uh, amazing, amazing uh, insights. What about an exciting project that, what do you guys want to share with the listeners about an exciting project you're working on today? Yeah. I mean, I think that, we're continually thinking about how we can take the discoveries that we've made in foundational just microbial diversity and discovering these new enzymes and how we can apply them to new applications and new directions. So one thing that we're working on pretty actively right now is a field called RNA editing. And that's about using some of the enzymes we've discovered to actually change the information in RNA instead of DNA. So DNA is in the molecular dogma of biology. DNA is kind of like the blueprints. It's this foundation, but RNA is really what the information is turned into. It's Mm -hmm. where you can actually see which proteins are going to be made in that particular cell. So it's more transient and it's more abundant but it's kind of a a more closer proximity to uh, the actual machinery of the cell. And what we think is really cool about this is that DNA editing is so powerful. We now have this ability with CRISPR to kind of, to a first, first approximation, go into a cell and make a change. But there's a lot of questions about, you know, do you want to make permanent changes? Because, of course, there's questions about, should we make changes to the genome or will there be off-target effects that could make changes somewhere else that would be permanent and problematic? Or you know, what if that's passed down to other cells? So by changing RNA, we're having a more temporary change potentially, which actually allows us to not have to worry about those problems as much. But it also allows us to have much more flexibility with what we can do. So we can use the precision of this really single base resolution where we can change a single letter and know exactly what that will do to the biology of a cell, but do it on a temporary level. So we can change a protein temporarily and 
alter the inflammatory state of the immune cell or alter how a nerve cell is expressing a certain receptor or channel so it behaves in a temporary fashion. And because most medicines you don't want permanently, right? You don't mm -hmm. want a painkiller to take a painkiller and not be able to feel pain for the rest of your life. So I think the power of gene editing, taking that to a more broad way and saying, now we have control over how we can express proteins and have these different biologies, but also have temporal control, we can turn it off, this yeah. impermanence. I think that's gonna be a really large field going forward. I mean, there are, of course, tons and tons of caveats with you know, how we actually implement it and deliver it. But once we look past all of those, it's kind of this general larger threat of medicine, being able to have very, very precise control over the states of the biology, most foundational level in our bodies, which as therapies develop will lead to a lot of miraculous things because control of cell state, control of different pathways. It's a totally new approach to being able to do medicine. And I think it'll be a really fertile area. Yeah, no, that's really, really fascinating uh, insights there. And um, yeah, it makes everybody wonder what is next and, uh, and temporal control. Wow. I mean, being able to affect RNA in that way never crossed my mind. I mean, this is definitely going to give me something to think about after our, our interview, guys. So you're exploding my brain here. You guys are definitely awesomely smart and insightful. I know the listeners are probably really enjoying this right now. But all great things also have to come to an end. <laughs> so in the, in the next few minutes that we have here, Jonathan and Omar, we've got a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you guys five questions. It'll be rapid fire answers. And then we're going to follow that by a book recommendation from both of you guys. So if you're up for that, just let me know. Yeah, sounds, sounds great. Sounds good. <laughs> awesome. All right. So what is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? I think, honestly, better diagnostics. So we need to have more information, real-time information, so that you know, you know what's wrong with the patient and actually have all the data to build proper hypotheses. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Yeah, I think it's really being super attached to an idea of both what it can do to your time if you were pursuing it too hard and not questioning yourself, but also to be emotionally attached to it and not be open to criticism. Love that. How do you stay relevant despite constant change? I think at least in our field, uh, stay on top of the literature, continue to sort of push the limits of thinking and creativity, you know, brainstorming. I like to think of, you know, what we do as an art and trying to really bring that creative process to how we think of ideas and combining new ideas to come up with innovative solutions to the problems of medicine. Some great advice. What's an area of focus that drives everything in your work? I think that we're both really inspired by kind of like the diversity and complexity of biology, both as kind of this natural beauty, but also about how we can really transform and take it to make these really useful therapies and diagnostics. Yeah, so interesting. And totally agree. I mean, just the conversation with you guys right now, I'm like super jazzed and inspired by your uh, enthusiasm. So definitely is contagious. So keep up the enthusiasm, the great work that you're up to. The final question here is a two-part question, and I'd love to hear from both of you on it. One of them is, what is your number one health habit? And then the second one is, what is your number one success habit? So whoever wants to go first. Health habit. I mean, I think the most important thing is getting, maintaining your sleep. It's becoming more and more clear every day that there are papers coming out on 
the effects of poor sleep on um, all these different processes at the molecular level even. Um, and you can see how it affects your mood. So I mean, I try to get a good night's sleep every night. And if I, if I can't, the next night, definitely prioritize moving on that. So yeah, just love it. Yourself. Yeah. So for, I guess for success habits, I'm not sure. I think actually, no, that's a tough question. But I think organization is actually the key. So nice. when we're running, I mean, when you're working by yourself in science, it's, you know, really easy to just do your own thing. But I think as we've grown out, you know, scientific teams, it's been really key to have organization for protocols, for, you know, uh, reagents, we generate like plasmids, we generate thousands of plasmids over the course of a year, and yeah. it's so easy to lose them. So having like a scheme where you can keep track of everything and essentially like a limbs model, um, where people can know exactly where something is, is so key to success. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. so Omar and I, I mean, we're obviously working incredibly close together and that involves a lot of alignment. So like every day we basically meet up in the morning and kind of go over what we need to do for that day and figure out, you know, what were the experiments, what are the things that are right, what's the kind of outline for the week. So just so we can stay on top of these different things. And that extends, I think, to every, every area where just kind of knowing what's going on allows you to not have to keep it all in your brain. So you can fill that kind of mental capacity with other thoughts and designs. Yeah, some great shares, guys. I mean, I, I feel that way about journaling too, right? I'm a big fan of journaling, just, uh, you know, thoughts and business and, and clinical affairs uh, work. And, um, you know, it's so important to stay organized, but also to go back and, and learn from insights that you gain that maybe you forgot about. So the reviewing of, of this stuff, how often do you guys go back and review the, the stuff that you, you've done? So we recently switched to electronic, or not recently, but like four years ago, we switched to electronic lab notebooks. Uh It's incredibly easy to just go back and find stuff that you maybe like wrote down three years ago, whether it's ideas or notes about a protocol that made it more efficient, better. And the best thing is with electronic lab notebook is you can just control F search. So great. Yeah. Instead of having like 10 notebooks, we have to physically go. That is amazing. (laughs) And then now you guys could probably even run some machine learning over it if you want to, right? Yeah, I mean, kind of like awesome. seeing how we have changed the way that we've done experiments. And in the future, hopefully people will be able to say, oh, this experiment failed. And so then you can look at that over, of course, thousands of experiments and figure out really these new rules of science. And um, that'll be an entirely new area. It'll be very exciting. Yeah. Oh, man, that is so cool. That is so cool. Well, thank you for sharing that, guys. What book would you recommend to the listeners? And you guys could both do one. Yeah, uh, I think for me, I recently read Originals by Adam Grant, and it's this sort of organizational psychology book about basically how to champion new ideas and effectively lead organizations to pursue new ideas and continue to innovate. And I think it like totally changed how I think about my own work, even though most examples of his are like in business and tech and sports, but like his advice applies to sort of any field. I think one of the main pieces of advice about like, Chanting new ideas that still sticks with me is that when you're presenting a new idea to someone or a group of people, the first instinct for people is to think about ways that the idea will fail or like, you know, they'll think of ways to tear it down and it makes it harder to get people to sort of see something that's totally new and challenges the way they think. And so a better way to present an idea is to actually present the idea and actually directly address all the problems of the idea. So actually put the problems up front and have people uh, sort of think about those. And what it does is that one builds trust because it doesn't seem like you're just peddling an idea and trying to sell uh, someone something. And two, when someone sees all the problems up front, they start to see, okay, 
how do we solve those problems? And they start thinking yeah. about how to make the idea better than actually how to tear down the idea. And I thought that was just a brilliant way of trying to bring sort of new energy to, to teams and groups of people in an organization. Very practical. Yeah. Great, great one. Great That's one. Good one. Um, <laughs> one book that I kind of always liked is um, Bertrand Ruscha's Medical Detectives. And it's a series of kind of short stories about uh, different studies in epidemiology where there's these kind of crazy things happening. I think the most famous one is a, is a few blue men. Um, it's about these, these different people who turn blue and what's the cause of these things. And for them, it turned out to be, um, it was, I think it was a salt that was contaminated with some other interesting aspect um, that led to kind of anoxic conditions. Um, but it has all these different kind of weird medical curiosities. Another one is somebody who had a kind of a really horrible, nauseous smells. Um, so they couldn't be around anything. It turned out to be a zinc deficiency. And it's it's kind of a cool way to just see, like, you know, there's so much interesting stuff out there in biology. There's these kind of crazy things that happen in the human body, but also throughout life. And being able to appreciate that, both as the fact that, you know, that it's just... Life is so weird in a kind of biological sense, but also how it really directly impacts, you know, human health and, and kind of our existence. It's really a nice thing to kind of think about. So it's a fun read. It's, 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 he's a very good writer. So, yeah, but it's, it's just all these crazy, crazy things <laughs> that happen to your body. That's very cool. That's very cool. And the way to get you to think outside the box too. No, that's a great recommendation. Uh, folks, you could, you could get all of our interview uh, synopsis uh, in, the, in the show notes or a full transcript. Just go to outcomesrocket.health and in the search bar, type in either Omar or type in Jonathan. You'll find it there. Or type in CRISPR too. We have a nice little search engine on the website. That'll help you um, get this podcast and any other podcasts that we record. But I think this is one you'll want to listen to again because it's uh, been a lot of fun interviewing these guys. So what I'd love to do here, Omar and Jonathan, is ask both of you to leave us with a closing thought and then uh, the best place where the listeners could uh, get in touch with or learn more about your work. Yeah. So I think my closing thought would be uh, everything we've worked with, all these enzymes, all these technologies have come from nature. We sequence bacteria from all over the world, from the deepest seas to you know mountains and thermal vents. And these bacteria have spent millions, hundreds of millions of years evolving these protein machines to do really interesting things that now we're starting to leverage for human health. And so I think it's just really incredible all the advances that we can develop to make sort of society better. And it just comes from the things that are all around us that are invisible to us. And I think that's really inspiring. Yeah, that's, that's a good one too. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> an important thing is you gotta have fun with it. You gotta look at your day to day and see what you enjoy and what you don't. And really be able to kind of justify yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And I think a lot of that comes with how you enjoy it. And a lot of that comes from the people you work with. So, you know, Omar and I, we've got this great working relationship, and I think we're really lucky to have that. And it's almost unique in a way. But just in science, in a lot of ways in life, it can be really tough, and you need to have good people that can support you. One person we haven't talked about much at all during this podcast is our mentor, Feng Zhang, and he's just an incredible mentor. So I think we've both been lucky enough to be surrounded by great people um, and find those ways to work with them and find good people and enjoy working with them. 
And that is, and that just makes the whole process so amazing. Uh, some great, great takeaways, guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, some takeaways for our listeners today. And um, apart from your LinkedIn profiles, which we'll leave in the show notes, what would be the best way for our listeners to keep up with your work? So we're going to actually, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, we graduated. So we're actually going to be starting a lab together um, at MIT in, well, it's technically already started. So that'll be at the McGovern Institute at MIT. And there should be a website up uh, fairly soon. It's M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N. So if you just Google that, MIT, we should have a, a lab website and, and personal websites that could kind of describe what we're doing. And we can send you those links um, when they're up. Yeah, that sounds great. So folks, you're listening. Uh, by the time this goes live, these guys will be up and running on their on their website as well. But it's the McGovern Institute at, at MIT. Yeah, that's it. Oh, so Google that, folks. But also go to the show notes. Just go to outcomesrocket.health. Look up Omar and Jonathan. You'll see uh, the two guys there. <laughs> click on the click on the show notes, and uh, we'll share the links that they'll provide so you could keep up with the awesome work that they're up to. So again, Omar, Jonathan, just want to say a big thank you for sharing your insights with us on these really cutting edge uh, science topics and uh, looking forward to keeping up with your work uh, myself. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.